0: Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans. Season 6. The Hanseatic League is starting today with episode 109 – The Gotlandfahrer. If I put the word Hanseatic into Google search, I get as result number 4 – Hanseatic Kings Lynn – Visit West Norfolk. Now, I can say with absolute confidence there is not a single German individual place or organisation that a small town in England which chose not just to associate with, but to incorporate itself into its history, save for the Hanseatic League. The English may play Zadok the priest at the coronation, but that is because both Handel and Prince Charles are considered English with German roots. Kings Lynn calling itself a Hanseatic city is a different thing, and it happens in many other places. Bergen is proud of his Hanseatic past as is Visby and Gotland and the Dutch former members of the League. The love of all things Hanseatic goes so far that it even overrides the Germans' fascination with all things car-related. As you may know, the German system of number plates is strictly hierarchical, as so many other things. The first one, two or three letters indicate the place where the vehicle is registered at the time. The more letters, the smaller the town or county of registration. So for instance, WES stands for Wiesel and STD for Stade two of the smaller members of the Hanseatic League. The two-letter cities are bigger and plentiful. LG, for instance, stands for Lüneburg and BS for Brunswick. And only the largest cities get to proudly display just one single letter. For instance, K for Cologne, B for Berlin and F for Frankfurt. But what about Germany's second largest city, the free and Hanseatic city of Hamburg? Does your honourable Hamburg merchant drive round in a car, ostentatiously displaying a proud single H? Well, no, of course he doesn't. His number plate is HH, standing for Hansestadt Hamburg, leaving the single H to the inland Hanoverians. And other Hanseatic cities like Bremen, Lübeck, Wismar, Rostock, Greifswald and Stralsund also proudly carry an additional H on their number plate. A subtle reminder to everyone that their hometowns are different and dare one say, superior to other cities. How can an organisation that had hardly any permanent institutions, that traded rather pedestrian commodities like grain, herring, furs and beeswax, and ceased to exist in 1669, still stir so many people's hearts with pride? That is what we will try to figure out in this podcast series. But before we start, let me tell you that the history of the Germans podcast is advertising free thanks to the generous support from patrons and you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com you find all the links in the show notes, and thanks a lot to Corey M., Daniel R., Christopher W., and William S., who have already signed up. The history of the Hanseatic League normally begins with the story of the foundation, destruction and then re-foundation of Lübeck. This series will not do that. For once, we already had a whole episode on the foundation of Lübeck and if you want to check it out, look for episode 105 of the History of the Germans podcast. But more importantly, the foundation of Lübeck is still just the foundation of a city. Now, do not get me wrong, Lübeck is a stunning city and its Rathaus and the magnificent churches including the astounding Marienkirche, tells us about the wealth and the civic pride of its inhabitants. But then, Bruges is an even more astounding merchant city, as are Antwerp, Amsterdam, and not to speak of Florence or Venice. What I mean is that if Lübeck, Bremen, Hamburg, Gdansk and Riga had just been successful trading cities in the Middle Ages, the city of King's Lynn would not remind everyone of their old business relationship. It isn't the size and beauty of its cities that makes the Hanseatic League, it is the way they cooperated, And that does not begin with the foundation of Lübeck, but with something that happened shortly afterwards, in 1161. Being a merchant in the 12th century isn't a job for sissies. These traders aren't spindly, bespectacled men passing their days making long entries in their accounting books or piling up gold coins in the counting house. Merchants in the 12th century are part traders, part adventurers, and part pirate. And at that stage, most of them cannot write, but are a dab hand with a sword. Their life is incredibly dangerous. If the risks associated with sailing the Baltic seas at the outer edge of the seasons isn't going to get you, the locals may take a sudden dislike to you, robbers may steal your wares, or some greedy local ruler may decide it's time to levy some new tolls or some toes. You remember that we talked about Frederick II's law court in Sicily, where he banned the carrying of weapons. Well, he banned everyone, including his nobles, from going about town with swords and knives. The only civilians exempt from that rule were the merchants. Because they really needed them. And these guys were hard as nails. Only a bunch of merchants can come up with the concept of the Carroccio, the ox-driven war cart the Italian communes used as a rallying point during their battles. These machines were far too heavy and too ungainly to flee the battlefield, forcing the merchant citizen warriors to fight until the very bitter end, whilst their knightly opponents ran away as soon as the bannerman had fallen or turned tail. Travelling within one of the more settled political entities, like, say, Sicily or the contado of one of the major Italian city republics, was already a challenge. But going about in what used to be the Stem Duchy of Saxony, where imperial power was non-existent and the central ducal power disappeared in 1180, was already a lot more challenging. Now, going across the Baltic, where the largest power, Denmark, was caught up in an almost incessant civil war, where large parts of the coast were still occupied by pagans with little sympathy for western merchants, and where your target is Novgorod, whose ruler is only loosely connected to the western monarchs, that is way up the maybe-not-such-a-good-idea scale. Plus... The distinction between honourable merchant and freebooter was rather fluid. Imagine you're a merchant and you have set out to buy cloth and currants at the great fairs of champagne. But the winds were distinctly not in your favour. Or something broke on your boat. I can tell you stories about that. So, you get there late, or you know that you will be late. All the good stuff will be gone, and if you come home empty-handed, you face ruin. So what do you do? You place your ship at the mouth of the Rhine or the Scheldt Rivers and wait for the next colleague who comes up, board his ship, take his goods and be off. The only other alternative is, well, you press on to somewhere nobody from your corner of the world had yet gone and, if very lucky, you come back yourself and you bring back some fabulous new products everyone will pay top dollar for. There were some people who were up to this task and that were the inhabitants of Gotland. Gotland is that large Swedish island halfway up the Baltic, and according to many, the original home of the Goths. Gotlanders were a tough people, and they had been trading across the Baltic since time immemorial. By the 12th century, their ships had gained almost a monopoly on the transport of wax and furs from the far north of the Baltic to Schleswig, and from there to Western Europe. The Gotlanders were merchants in the style of the Vikings, or more precisely, they were Vikings. That meant they spent most of the year as farmers, with the seafaring activity more of a side hustle. They lived on their farms and during the season took their Viking ships called knarrs up to the great trading city of Novgorod, picked up what they needed and then returned either home or somewhere where there was a market for it. Now, where a merchant would go with his wares depended on two things. Firstly, whether there would be willing buyers prepared to compensate you for your troubles, and secondly, whether you're likely to make it out of there with all your cash and all your limbs. Henry the Lion, Duke of Saxony and Bavaria, who had just wrestled the side of Lübeck from the Counts of Holstein, seems to have understood this very well. If he wanted this new settlement to grow and produce lots of fine gold for him, he needed for the Goldlanders to come there, and for that he needed to create both a source of demand for goods and a guarantee for the safety of these foreign traders. The former was created relatively easily. South of Lübeck lay his great Duchy of Saxony and beyond it the rest of the Holy Roman Empire. All that he needed was people willing to use this new route. But as he was the Duke of Saxony, his power stretched all the way to Westphalia and the two great trading cities there, Zost and Dortmund. He invited merchants from there to trade in Lübeck, and if they wanted to, settle there. Now, he needs the second leg to that trade, the Gotlanders, and it seems things there had gone badly pear-shaped. In 1161, just three years after the re of Lübeck, Henry the Lion wrote to the Gotlanders, quote, In the name of the Holy and Undivided Trinity, Henry by Divine Benevolent Grace, Duke of the Bavarians and Saxons. All present and future faithful of Christ should learn in their wisdom how out of love for peace and respect for the Christian religion, but especially out of contemplation of eternal retribution, we have resolved the discord that has long been bad between the Germans and the Gotlanders. Stirred up by the spirit of evil. We re-establish the ancient unity and concord. And also, how we resolved the many evils, namely the hatred, enmity and murders, that arose from the discord of the two peoples, with the helping grace of the Holy Spirit, in an eternal stability of peace and afterwards, kindly accepted the Gotlanders into the grace of our reconciliation. End quote. Clearly, things had gone very badly. Hatred, enmity and murder are not the kind of things you want to experience in a trading city. And so Henry goes and personally guarantees their safety. He writes, quote, The Goatlanders should have a firm peace throughout the entire dominion of our power so that they should obtain full justice and amendment from our judicial power, whatever the loss of their property or injuries suffered within the borders of our rule, with the added benefit that they should be exempt from tolls in all our cities. He then lists all the various ways he is going to punish any of his subjects should they harm any of the Goatlanders. So far, so good, he's now solved the problem of getting the Goldlanders to come. But that does not yet get him what he really, really wants. Because since he's just freed the Goldlanders' traders from paying taxes and tolls, he now needs his own merchants to undertake lucrative journeys to faraway lands, merchants that he can ask to line his pockets. And so he puts in another last clause that reads rather innocuously as follows Quote, And last of all, the same benefits and rights, namely this treaty that we have decreed for our merchants, we stipulate faithfully in perpetuity also for all Goldlanders, and should maintain it inviolably as long as they, in grateful reciprocity, grant the same to us, visiting us and our land more frequently in our port in Lubeck more often. End quote. So it basically says. All this protection applies only if you grant the same level of protection to our merchants when they visit Gotland, and a uh, please come often. Several historians have suggested that this passage was only added later, namely in 1225, the date of the oldest remaining copy of this document, which by the way is called the Treaty of Outlandborg. And maybe that's true, because in 1161 Henry was in no position to demand anything from the Gotlanders. He needed them, they did not need him they could continue to trade via Schleswig, it was a bit slower, but not really a problem. But even if it was not written down explicitly, the Goldlanders knew that if they wanted to trade through Lübeck and get their Bismarcks quicker down to the great monasteries of Westphalia, it would not be helpful slaughtering German merchants arriving on Gotland and nicking their stuff. So, Goldlanders and German merchants enjoyed safety and support in each other's ports. As time went by, not only did Gotlanders come to Lübeck, but merchants from the Holy Roman Empire also came to Gotland. They founded something they called the Society of Germans who frequently sailed to Gotland, the Gotlandfahrer. The first and most prevalent reason that merchants pulled together was safety. If they travelled in a convoy, pirates and even hostile states would find it more difficult to capture and rob them. It is a system that is as old as trade. Every caravan trundling along the Silk Road is based on this logic. The members of the convoy or caravan pledge each other's support in case of an attack. And since the Gotlandfahrer went several times a year on the same route, the structure was more institutionalized, and the mutual assurances were likely given in the form of elaborate oaths. These arrangements are however only useful when they can be enforced. There is no point to having a member of the society who takes flight as soon as the pirate fleet appears over the horizon, leaving his fellow merchants to fight the battle. Or what can also not be tolerated is that the member brings the society into disrepute by cheating his negotiation partners or making himself a nuisance on Gotland. So, the society likely had rules of behavior and means to enforce them. The Treaty of Artlenburg has a side letter, where Henry the Lion appoints a certain Olderich as his bailiff and representative, and gives him the right to adjudicate between the members of the guild. Alderich is likely an alderman that the merchants had themselves elected and who now possessed the right to sit in judgment over his fellow society members, even allowed to order physical punishments in the duke's name. As the organization consolidates further, they become a legal entity. We know that in 1226 they had their own seal showing a lily as a symbol of royal protection. In many aspects, the society of Gut resembled resembled Italian communes in the Middle Ages. In Italy, too, the roads were dangerous and the merchants were ganging up to protecting themselves. As their system of mutual support became more and more institutionalized, these communes gradually took over the management of the cities where they were based in. In the end, the term commune went from meaning a group of merchants to meaning the citizens of a specific town. But that is where the Gotlandfara and its successor organizations differed from the Italian communes in most other societies, guilds or other merchant organizations of the Middle Ages. The Gotlandfahrer were not exclusively from Lübeck. The society was open to all merchants from the Holy Roman Empire. Why they were so open is quite easy to understand. The city of Lübeck was only a few years old and many of its inhabitants had come from elsewhere. Moreover, the capital needed to fund the building of ships and the purchase of goods to trade had to come from somewhere, certainly not from Lübeck, which was still in ruins from the fire. It came from established trading cities like, for instance again, Dortmund and Zost in Westphalia. In Italy, the great cities like Milan, Cremona, Pavia, Venice and Genoa already had a sizable population when long-distance trading started out in earnest, so they did not have to be open to new members. But out here, on the Baltic shore, everything was new and everything was in flux. The Gotland Fire Society did not enforce restrictions based on whether an applicant was a citizen of Lübeck. Anyone could join after having been properly scrutinized. In fact, even though the society was explicitly called a society of Germans, they did admit Gotlanders to their ranks. Seemingly, the initial quarrels and murders had been quickly forgotten. The German merchants settled on Gotland in the city of Visby. For a time, there were two cities with separate councils and seals, one for the Gotlanders and one for the German merchants, but they soon merged, but the council of the unified city of Visby was still elected separately by each of the communities. The Gotlander merchants had initially lived on their farms all across the island, but now Visby had become the centre. The city grew rapidly and in the middle of the 13th century, had acquired 11,200 feet of city walls enclosing 90 hectares. Inside were at least 18 churches, more than in any other Swedish medieval city. The biggest of these churches was the Church of St. Mary of the Germans. What made Visby rich was the trade with Novgorod, a city lying about 200 kilometers southeast of modern-day St. Petersburg. Novgorod was the entry point into the markets of this vast landmass that is today, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Georgia and beyond. The main exports from Novgorod were fur and beeswax. Now beeswax is in very high demand in the West, mainly because the monks and bishops chapters needed it to light their churches during their nightly prayers. Interestingly, the honey that came from the same source as the beeswax was not sent westwards, but south to Constantinople and then down the Silk Road. The bees had fed on the vast forests of pine, spruce and fir that cover large parts of Russia. The honey they produce is hence dark and viscous, features much valued in the Orient. The honey went along the Great River systems down to Constantinople and from there east along the Silk Route as far as Baghdad and China. This export was seemingly so lucrative that Novgorod would replace its own honey with imported honey from the Baltic, there was usually much lighter. It still astounds me that relative commodities like honey and beeswax could be transported over thousands of miles to their end-users in the 12th century, when roads were terrible or non-existent, and there were constant dangers from robbers and local rulers. This is the same time when journeys to the Holy Land were always preceded by the making of wills and generous donations to the church. And still, many of the pilgrims did not survive the trip. Now taking such a long journey, not for the guaranteed ticket to paradise, but just for the markup on a half ton of honey, doing it not once in life, but annually, takes a particular kind of person. The traders who took the honey down to Constantinople came back with spices, silks and other luxuries from the East, which they would then sell to the German and Gotland traders who took them westwards. So when King Henry II had his mutton generously peppered, and the lovely Eleanor clad in the finest silks, that pepper and that silk was as likely to have come via Kiev, Smolensk and Gotland as via Venice and Bruges. Fur was also always popular, partly as a luxury but also as a day-to-day necessity in winter. The furs came down from even further north of Novgorod as hunters travelled up to Karelia, the White Sea and even the Barents Sea, to hunt the most beautiful pelted quarry. The most valuable was the sable, where 100 pelts sold at 82 ducats in Venice. Martens came in at 30 ducats, beaver and ermine much cheaper at 12 to 14 ducats, and then it gets even cheaper with the lynx at 5.5 ducats, otters and weasels at 5, and then the different types of squirrels at usually 3 to 4 ducats. The most desirable of the squirrels was the grey Arctic ground squirrel, whose coat could go up to 7 ducats. I wonder what they would have paid for the pal of one of those grey tree rats that have overrun the UK and nearly exterminated the lovely red squirrels ever since they were introduced in the 1800s. Now, On the other side of the trade, Novgorod's first main import, apart from the honey, was cloth. Cloth was always in demand. The great cloth cities of Flanders, Bruges, Ghent and Ypres, so forth, wove English wool into the Middle Ages' most popular traded good. And there was also linen coming up from Westphalia. And the second equally important import was salt, needed to preserve food. Fish as well as meat caught in the summer needed to be preserved so that there was something to eat in the winter when the rivers were frozen and the fields and woods empty of fruit. And salt may be the reason for what happens next. Because the Baltic Sea is not very salty. To be precise, salination is just 7 grams per liter of water compared to 35 grams in the major oceans. That makes it one of the nicest places to spend a beach holiday but one of the worst places to generate salt from evaporation. To make things worse, underground salt deposits in Europe occur mainly in a strip going from southern Poland across northern Germany, Denmark and into the North Sea. Crucially, there are no mineable salt deposits in the Baltic, north of Denmark, specifically not on Gotland. And that looks to me as the main reason the Gotlanders started to make common cause with the merchants coming in via Lübeck. The Gotlanders knew the way to Novgorod and its lovely beeswax and furs. The Germans could provide the salt so desperately needed up north. There were the large salt mines in Lüneburg and Oldesloe, both not far from Lübeck. So the Gotlanders allowed the German merchants to sail on their vessels all the way to the top of Finland. Later, the Germans would fit out their own ships, mostly the more modern cogs, and sail there on their own transports. For the journey, they did not create a new society of Germans who frequently travelled to Novgorod. The Gotland Gotlandfarer Society, in its form as a legal entity, was a one-time affair. From now on, what we will later call the Hanseatic League, will be a much looser entity, much harder to grasp, with limited statues and institutions. But they will still all together travel in a convoy, and for good reason. As I mentioned before, Novgorod lies almost 200 kilometers inland. The merchants from Gotland, Lübeck and later from many cities along the Baltic coast would sail up in separate convoys and then congregate on the island of Kotlin or Kronstadt, just off the coast of what is today St. Petersburg. Kronstadt would later become the headquarter of the Russian Baltic fleet. But since St. Petersburg would not be built for another 500 years, Kronstadt was just a port where goods could be moved onto lighter vessels to sail up the Neva River. Once the fleet had gathered, they would elect two aldermen for the term of this trading expedition. One was the Alderman of the Yard, who was overall responsible, and then the Alderman of St. Peter, who managed transport and was in charge of security. They proceeded along the Neva River the river that flows past St. Petersburg as it makes its way from the Ladoga Sea to the Baltic. Along the shore waited Karelian and Swedish raiders, trying to steal their goods. Once through the Neva River, the traders reached the town of Ladoga at the mouth of the Volkov River. Here again the goods had to be moved to new transports as there were impassable rapids. To cap it all off, then they had to travel another 200 kilometers on the Volkov River until they finally finally reached Novgorod. Novgorod was by then one of Eastern Europe's largest cities. When the Kievan Rus began to disintegrate in the 12th century, the princes of Novgorod became the dominant force in what is today Russia. The city itself was however almost independent, its politics led by local noblemen, boyars, who lived in the city, usually inside fortified compounds, but merchants and artisans also had their say. Population in the 14th century reached 15 to 20,000, very much on par with the largest cities of the Hanseatic League and not far short of Cologne with 25,000. The Götlanders had been trading with Novgorod for probably centuries and had acquired their own fortified compound inside the city called the St. Olaf Yard, after St. Olaf, King of Sweden. There, they hosted their new German friends and neighbours. These trading yards were effectively small fortresses. The merchants were well aware that they were in enemy territory and that the locals could at any time come and burn down their establishment. It had strong walls, much stronger than the walls of the local aristocratic compounds and even featured a watchtower. And As the trade with Novgorod grew, the merchants of the Holy Roman Empire established their own yard, the yard of St. Peter in Novgorod. It centered around a church which was used not just for worship, but also as a storeroom for the trading goods. Each night, two men, who must not be related nor working for the same merchant company, were locked up inside the church to guard the goods. The alderman's main job was to ensure the community stayed safe. That meant posting guards and maintaining good relationships with the city authority, which I'm sure included the occasional bribe. But even more importantly, he had to ensure discipline amongst his fellow merchants, so as not to provoke their hosts. Misbehaviour such as brawling with locals and chasing girls was strictly forbidden. But it also involved making sure that the merchants maintained good standards of probity. Wax was the good most prone to fraud. Sellers and traders would often mix in some other fats, made from acorns, peas or resins. Neither the seller nor the traders were prepared to guarantee the quality of the product, and complaints were quite common. The yard therefore maintained various forms of quality control mechanisms, including a wax examiner, to ensure goods bought and sold were meeting minimum standards. For quite some time the community of merchants in Novgorod bore collective responsibility for the debts of any of its members, and each merchant was limited to buy and sell no more than the equivalent of a thousand mark. That was a demand from the Novgorod authorities, who wanted to avoid becoming dependent on one or few importers for their crucial supplies but still have the recourse to a large capital base. Though meant as a restriction, it also worked for the foreign traders, because the constraints limited the volume of imports and kept prices high, making the arduous journey to Novgorod lucrative, even for medium-sized merchants. Another provision the authorities in Novgorod insisted upon was that no trader stays in the city all year round. That forced the merchants to break up into two groups, There were the winter merchants who came down in early autumn just before the rivers were freezing over and stayed until the spring. Staying over the winter allowed them to acquire the best furs that were mostly hunted in the snow when the prey was easier to spot. And Just as they left, a summer contingent would arrive, bringing fresh supplies of salt and cloth and buying beeswax and oriental luxuries. Because the winter and summer merchants were completely separate, they also had separate financial arrangements. When, say, the winter merchants returned in spring, they took with them their strongbox and contained the money collected for the maintenance of the St. Peter yard and the expenses, such as bribes, etc. This strongbox was then deposited in the church of St. Mary in Visby until the fleet would gather again in early autumn and go to Novgorod again. The strongbox only opened when four keys were present and these keys were held by the representatives of Lübeck, obviously, but also of Visby, the main settlement in Gotland, Soest, near Münster in Westphalia, and Dortmund. Yes, Dortmund, today best known as a major city in the Ruhr and a world power in football. But Dortmund was also one of the founding members of the Hanseatic League and one of its leaders. So, here we are, back in Visby. The society of Germans who frequently travel to Gotland, the Gotlandfahrer and the subsequent organisation of the St. Peter's Yard in Novgorod, are the earliest forms of the Hanseatic League. There are many of the hallmarks of the thing that will gradually emerge. It is first and foremost an association of long-distance traders who've got together to protect themselves against the innumerate dangers they experience on their journeys. But other than the Italian medieval communes or the great cloth merchants of Flanders, access to their association or guild wasn't limited to men from a particular place. It was open to all traders from the Holy Roman Empire. We have records of traders from the tiny townlet of Medebach in the Sauerland. To translate that for our US audience, that would be Muskogee, Oklahoma. These guys could travel all the way from the back and beyond in Westphalia to the Arctic Circle and return, all under the protective shield and using the trading privileges of the German merchants in the St. Peter's Yard in Novgorod. And we get another crucial element, the commercial discipline and branding. If you came to Novgorod on your own, assuming you made it at all, it would have been very difficult for you to sell your wares at a good price. Your clients will ask, is that cloth you sell really the high-quality material from Bruges or not the cheap stuff from Ypres? The salt, could it be mixed with something? Where do I go when I have a complaint and you've gone home? The members of the St. Peter's Yard maintained, or at least pretended to maintain, strict discipline amongst their ranks, and if one of their customers had found themselves cheated by one of their merchants, they knew at least where to go for redress. This created what we would today call a brand. Merchants who came in with that fleet became seen as trustworthy. They may be a touch more expensive, but you get what you were hoping to get. Moreover, the discipline inside the yard created a network of trust between the merchants. Because they had travelled together through the Neva River and up the Volkov, they had selected two amongst their members to be their aldermen, and these men had proven to be unbiased, even though they may not have come from the same merchant's hometown. They saw fellow merchants who cheated or brawled being punished or even expelled, making you believe that all of those still inside the yard must be honourable. And as you spend the long nights of the Arctic winter playing cards or chess with your fellow travellers, standing guard inside the church with another trader, what are you going to talk about? Well, the same stuff we talk about. Business, politics and kids. So why not get together for the next deal? Maybe we can bring your son and my daughter together to see whether they like each other? And maybe your boy would like to come as an apprentice to Stralsund. One of the most valuable economic commodities begins to emerge trust. And also gradually merchants began to believe that their system of justice they had created with the elected aldermen who kept order was to be trusted. Whilst at the same time the aldermen knew that their term was only for this journey and that biased decisions this year could backfire very badly next year when somebody else was alderman. In 1468, so quite a lot later, the English king Edward IV demanded that the Hanseatic merchants declare what they are, a society, a cooperative or a corporation. And they answered that there were none of those things. They are a firm association of cities and merchants who cooperate to their mutual benefit. They simply, but they do not fit, any medieval Roman law category. But we do know exactly what they are. They are a network, a trust-based network. They have more in common with eBay, Etsy, Airbnb, Booking.com or Amazon than the European Union or NAFTA. Like any of these internet platforms, the members trade goods based on trust in each other. Like we know that an Airbnb with many and consistently good reviews is going to be a decent place to stay, a medieval merchant in the Hansa would know that ordering his goods from such-and-such and such and Stralsund will result in timely delivery in reasonable quality. The job of the network is to ensure the minimum quality standards by expelling merchants who consistently fall short, and to provide an equal playing field with reliable processes for complaints and refunds. I know, the comparison is obviously not quite right, because the Hanseatic League itself did not make astronomic profits from providing this network. But the fundamental components are the same – it's a system of mutual trust and the confidence in the process, i.e. the rule of law. That is my current theory why the Hanseatic League was so successful. Mutual trust and the rule of law are some of the strongest engines of economic growth. Let's see throughout this series whether the theory holds. When you see modern day companies branding themselves as Hanseatische Krankenkasse, Hanseatischer Lloyd, Hanseatischer Weinkontor, Hanseatischer whatever, they try to trap into that notion that a Hanseatic merchant is a man or woman one can trust and maybe even King's Lynn hopes to gain a little bit of that cachet when they call themselves a Hanseatic city. It is in the end just good business. And next week we'll talk about how this good business keeps growing. We will look at how a string of cities along the Baltic coast come into being, what they trade, who lives there, and why some flourish and others disappear quite quickly. And maybe we can also cover the western leg of the trade. After all, trade is all about linking two or more places, and the places where the goods from the Baltic go are the Empire, England and Flanders. I hope you're going to join us again. And now, before I go and before I thank all of you who are supporting the show, let me tell you about my latest plan. I'm, like you, a great fan of narrative history podcasts, and I do listen to quite a few. And what I noticed is that I find them often quite difficult to navigate. It's okay if you are a hardcore fan, because Then you have listened to all the previous episodes and just wait for the next one to drop. But sometimes I let things slack, and suddenly there are 20 new episodes I've missed. Or I discover a new podcast that is now on episode 177, and I'm just a bit intimidated and unsure whether I want to listen to all of this. So my idea is to publish this and all future episodes of this series twice. Once here in the main feed and then a day later in a separate podcast called The Hanseatic League, a podcast by the History of the Germans. So, for you guys, you're committed listeners to the History of the Germans, nothing will change. You will get your episodes as normal. You will not miss anything on that other feed. And please, if you suddenly come across a separate podcast about the Hanseatic League by your favorite podcaster, do not get angry when it turns out to be almost 100% the same episode you have just listened to. On the other hand, if you know someone who might be interested in the history of the Germans and most specifically in the Hanseatic League but may be put off by believing he needs to listen to 107 other episodes first, send him here. And if this turns out to be successful, I may repurpose some of the back catalogue into separate podcasts as well. Let's just see. I'll explain all this in the show notes and also on social media, specifically on Twitter, at Germans History and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. Ah, And as still a big thank you to all my patrons, your support is so important to keeping this show on the road. And last but not least, the Bibliography. For this episode I relied heavily on Philipp Dollinger, Die Hanse, Die Hanse, Lebenswirklichkeit und Mythos, created by Jürgen Bracker, Volker Henn and die Rainer Postel, special thanks for the translation of the Artlenburg Privilege to Dr. Jenny Benham. And even more special thanks to Dr. Justina Woops montrovic whose research I found absolutely eye-opening.